Hi, and welcome to the Professionals Playbook. My name is Justin Hazard Lee. I'm an F-35 fighter pilot for the Air Force. Today, I interviewed James Murph Murphy. He is the founder and chairman of Afterburner, a leadership training firm comprised of more than 80 current and former elite military professionals. Afterburner has been awarded Inc. Magazine's Fastest Growing Company Award five times and has worked with over 85% of the U.S. Fortune 50 companies. Before founding Afterburner, Murph served as an F-15 pilot in the U.S. Air Force. He is also the author of six books that range in topic from leadership development to veteran career transition. In our conversation, we talk about the biggest issues that businesses struggle with, what it was like to apply the fighter pilot mindset to the New York Giants Super Bowl run, and how to stay agile, both individually and as a company. Before we get started, today's episode is brought to you by SandboxNews.com, a media company whose mission and purpose is connecting the military community. They have in-depth articles related to different facets of the military, everything from how to become an Army Ranger to an article I wrote on self-discipline. You can learn more at SandboxNews.com. That's S-A-N-D-B-O-X-X news.com. If you'd like to keep up and follow along with me, you can find me on LinkedIn under Justin Hazard Lee. That's Hazard with an S instead of a Z. All right, let's get to the interview. Murph, welcome to the show. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on here. Hazard, it's great to be here. Would you mind talking to your background and what led up to you strapping on a F-15 on your back? <laughs> yeah, well, my journey to the cockpit was different than yours. I think you're a Zoomie, right? Aren't you an Air Force Academy guy? I am. So you probably had posters on your wall and dreamed of being a, a fighter pilot or an astronaut since you were a young kid. Is that right? Since I was five. Yeah. Yep. So my journey was a little different. I wanted to be a professional athlete, specifically a baseball player. So I grew up in a really rural area in central Kentucky on a small farm and was focused on athletics for the most part. So I was a country boy and I was fortunate enough to parlay my baseball skills into a scholarship. And then obviously was really focused on getting drafted into the professional ranks. So I went to a four-year school in Florida my first year, my freshman fall semester. Some professional scouts said, hey, we'd like to draft you. If you stay here another semester, you're going to be ineligible until your junior year. So go to a junior college, which I did, and went to a small little baseball factory slash junior college down in southern Mississippi called Pearl River Junior College for my sophomore year. I went down there and had a great year, ended up playing in the uh, all-star game and had a lot of national accolades. But then a lot of the big baseball schools were knocking on my door and I was awaiting the draft that year. And I ended up not getting drafted, but it really opened up the doors to sign with schools like Florida and Kentucky and LSU and some other schools that I dreamed of playing for and ended up coming back home and uh, playing for Kentucky. So I finished out my college career there. And I'm not going to give you all the backgrounds on my baseball career, but to make a really long story short, it didn't happen. I don't get drafted. I finish up my degree at UK and end up going to work for my dad's company selling copiers and facsimiles to small rural companies around Kentucky. And during that time frame, I end up meeting a young man that was a fighter pilot. 
of course, pretty disappointed that my baseball career did not work out at that point. I was looking because I really couldn't foresee myself staying in Shelby County, Kentucky, potentially working for my dad's company or being a farmer. I was looking for something else uh, in my life. And this guy was like you, Hazard, just really had his stuff together, made a huge impression on me and said, hey, have you ever thought about becoming a military pilot? So he took me out to uh, the Kentucky Air National Guard, and they were flying RF-4s at the time, which is the F-4, but the reconnaissance version uh, of the F-4, and allowed me to get in the cockpit. And literally, when I lowered myself down in the cockpit of that F-4, I said, you know, gosh, what do I have to do to get in this seat? So from there on out, I started pursuing flying lessons and just really became engrossed in figuring out how to beg, borrow, and steal to get into the Air Force, Navy, or the Marines and and get into a cockpit. And right about this time, a movie came out called Top Gun. Maybe you've seen it before. (laughs) And that just put fuel on the fire. Also, right around the same time, I was dating a girl down in Atlanta, Georgia. She was a swimmer at Kentucky. And I had gone down to visit her and there was another fighter pilot that had walked up to the pool. She was a swimming instructor. And I went up and introduced myself to him and he invited me out to Dobbins Air Force Base because his unit was converting into the F-15 at the time with the Georgia Air National Guard. Also, right about that time, I went to my local recruiters and walked in off the street, talked to the Air Force recruiter. And the first question the sergeant that was the Air Force recruiter asked me is, you know, do I have an engineering degree, you know, 3.5 or above GPA? And I told him I had neither one of those things. And he said, well, you're not qualified probably to be a pilot or get a pilot training slot in the Air Force. So I went next door, talked to the Navy. Uh, There was an officer there with wings on his chest, and he had a completely different story. I took the test, and uh, he said, congratulations, I can get you an AOCS slot. You can become an aviator in the Navy and go to Pensacola. So I started pursuing that about the same time I had gone down to Georgia to visit my girlfriend at the time. And this guy that was flying F-15s for the Georgia Guard said, you don't want to do that. Put the brakes on the Navy. Uh, Here's why. And let me tell you about the Guard Baby program, which is really unique. And he said, you know, potentially you could get a Guard unit to sponsor you to go to pilot training. You go through your two years of active duty and you come back to this particular unit and fly this airplane, which I thought was unbelievable. I'd never heard of that before. And it was just very, I was very lucky to have met that That guy's name was Major Jim Reichenbach. He was a major at the time. And he kind of walked me through the process. So I politely declined the Navy and then started pursuing this guard slot. And unfortunately, because of the movie Top Gun, the popularity of becoming a fighter pilot just spiked. So the competition for that particular slot in that F-15 unit was unbelievable, nationwide competition. So they went from having 20 or 30 applicants every two years to 350. So, uh, you know, back in the day, you can probably remember these days, too, that, you know, my confidence level of going up against 300 plus applicants, I didn't feel that great about it. But I started rushing the unit. I would drive down, you know, every month or so, try to figure out a way to get on base and started meeting a lot of the members. And to make a real long story short, they narrowed it down from around 300 plus applicants down to 16, down to eight and then down to uh, six. And I was in the final six. 
and I was selected to go and represent that unit to go to pilot training. And they'd had some trouble getting guys fighter attack were qualified, which at the time, in order to fly a fighter, you had to graduate, obviously, in the top of your class and get what they called FAR, fighter attack reconnaissance qualified. And they had a hard time getting a few guys back. So the unit's taken a chance. And of course, there's a lot invested in you. So I left uh, for pilot training, very excited to become a member of the Georgia Air National Guard, and then uh, went through UPT and fighter lead in. And then I went to uh, RTU at Luke Air Force Base. Quite a journey. Uh, you, you went through that journey, very competitive. Took a while for me to really get my confidence uh, Right about the time RTU rolled around, I really had a, a phenomenal experience at RTU. Uh, really got my confidence and uh, really started to, I think, excel as a fighter pilot. And by the time I showed up at Dobbins, you know, another great experience. We had great leadership and they really believed in investing in their lieutenants and there wasn't a lot of us around. So uh, very quickly, you know, I was upgraded to flight lead, became an instructor pilot at an early age. I was tracking some of my guys in my same age group and I was getting a lot more flying hours and doing a lot of other things that were uh, beyond what where they were progressing on the active duty. So I felt very fortunate to get that opportunity. What was the school that you're looking to play baseball at in Florida? Well, no, I, I, I graduated from the University of Kentucky. So my, my first year was Eckerd College and then mm-hmm. uh, Pearl River Junior College and then UK. Okay, because I, I it sounds like our priorities were, were flipped because I definitely wanted to, to play professional baseball as well. But I also wanted oh, yeah. to be a fighter pilot at the same time and figured out, I think, about middle school that that was going to be difficult. But I remember wanting to go to University of Florida because I think it was Nomar Garcia Parra went yeah. there and I toured the school and ended up playing a little bit at the Air Force Academy. But yeah, I had the dream of wanting to play sports as well. Well, Hazard, I, I wanted to be a Gator as well. I was born in Jacksonville and lived in Florida till I was 13, then in Kentucky afterwards. And my whole family's from Kentucky. So I wanted to be a Gator since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Got a chance to go down there. Coach Arnold was the baseball coach at the time, and I came down for a recruiting visit, and he offered me a scholarship, but there was a guy playing my position that uh, was the same age as me, so I would have to compete for that position, and the Kentucky coach was going to move their first baseman to right field, put me at first base. I was going to bat third. He was going to bat fourth in the lineup, and he, he was bold enough to make that statement during the recruiting process, so I ended up signing with Kentucky versus Florida, but I almost was a Gator in their baseball program. And that's really where I wanted to be. But I ended up at Kentucky. And of course, uh, my hometown and my parents were were thrilled about that. So how did that sports background help out in pilot training and then at the RTU? Well, you know, it, it hurt me at first only because I felt like as a jock, so to speak, my academic progression was probably behind a lot of folks's progression at this point. So to compete with a guy that was an Air Force Academy grad, I just felt like, you know, you and I were not on the same level when I showed up at pilot training. So, you know, what I also realized too, though, is we had some Academy guys in our class. You were, you know, I wouldn't say over it, but you had four years of military under your belt already and studying. And and for me, this was the the big opportunity for me. So for me, I had to teach myself how to study, but also I wasn't going to let any distractions whatsoever get in the way. I mean, you know, it was either graduate or go back to Shelby County, Kentucky. And to me, there was, you know, there was only one way ahead. 
So the baseball, though, and the, and the athletics really started to come into play when I realized about six to eight months through pilot training that we all were the, you know, we all put our pants on the same way, so to speak. And once I started getting some confidence, then I knew what to do with the confidence. And then later, spatially as a fighter pilot, you know, the, the, you know, keeping track of things from a situational awareness standpoint and from a mental toughness standpoint, and then just from the physicality of pulling G's and staying, you know, three steps ahead of the jet and, you know, understanding where people were in a 3D environment. I think the baseball certainly helped me there because, you know, just the way you, your brain works as an athlete is so similar to the way your brain works uh, neurally as a fighter pilot. So I think it really helped tremendously, especially when I got into RTU. Right. Yeah, I box at the Air Force Academy and that's in Colorado Springs. And they had sports psychologists from the, the Olympic Training Center come and work with us. And it's taken a little bit of time. But here at Luke, we just got our first sports psychologist. So they're assigning one to okay. each fighter squadron so that the B coursers, as soon as they show up, they're starting that training. So I think I think it'll help out quite a bit. That's interesting. I, I'm very interested in that world. I'm I'm an investor in several companies that are in the neurospace for athletics, and I'm still involved with things up at the UK. And I was just at Ohio State with the football program a couple months ago, talking to them about some of the stuff that we're doing. So that's very fascinating work, and and I think the stuff that you and I did, Justin, as fighter pilots, and you're continuing to do is some real high level uh, neuro stuff and, you know, connecting the dots between, you know, the, the muscular and, and the reaction time and the decision-making process that, that goes on. You know, I, I think the fighter pot world is, it can really benefit greatly from neuro training. Yeah. I think it has a lot of similarities, even with the physical side, pulling G's as, as you know, is not easy on the body. Absolutely. So what are some of the highlights of your time flying the C model? So I flew the A model, uh, which is okay. lighter than the C model. And I flew the MISIP A model, which is, you know, almost a C model with less fuel, a little bit less fuel, but about 500 pounds lighter. The airplane was great. Flying for the Georgia Guard, the 116 fighter wing was great. All the same highlights that most fighter pods have, our deployments, uh, you know, the guys, you know, I, I think I was... It seemed like I was fast-tracked and, you know, two-ship flight lead, four-ship flight lead, IP. So I got a lot of opportunities to do things early on in my career. And, you know, I think later on in life, you realize that if you apply yourself, you, you truly can do just about anything you want to do. And early on as a fighter pilot, you know, that certainly helped me with that confidence level later on. But so, you know, just being a four-ship flight lead in, in the Eagle at the time, you know, you, you think about the 90s, we had a big Air Force then, you know, uh, big Navy, big Marines. You know, every day we would fly four VX, fly DACT almost every single day, sometimes twice a day. Typical sortie for us would be to take off from Dobbins, fly down off the coast to, uh, and hit the supersonic ranges and meet up with the Buford uh, F-18s and fly four VX with them on the ACMI ranges and then land, debrief with them, then rebrief, go up, fight again, and then limp back home without any fuel and barely make it to Dobbins <laughs> and uh, debrief again. So that, that would be a typical sortie for us. It was nice being in the southeastern United States, too, because at the time, Moody had a full complement of F-16. So did Shaw, the Swamp Foxes, the South Carolina Air National Guard. Those guys were always just super sharp, flying a different model F-16. So we had block 
thirties, we had big mouse, we had, you know, old F 16s, we had gold canopies, we had all the different variants of the F 16. And we had everything from the Moody guys being namely young new lieutenants and young captains all the way up to the, the grizzled veterans up in South Carolina, the swamp foxes. And uh, so it was really, really great flying, really enjoyed it. Yeah. I think we probably, not at the same time, but shared that airspace. I was at Shaw Air Force Base before this. And so we'd go out to the whiskeys and try right. DA, DACT out there, the Bulldog MOA. So it's yeah. all that stuff's pretty familiar to me. Dude, I spent many time, many, many, many hours in the Bulldog and the Snowbird MOAs with you all. So yeah, in, in the whiskey areas. So eventually you went off to start Afterburner. What was the impetus for that? Or had this been kind of in the back of your mind as you were flying? So if you remember, I told you about, I spent a little bit of time in business. So I grew up the son of an entrepreneur and a mother that was a farmer. And they were both from rural areas in Kentucky. But my dad was kind of a business guy, an entrepreneur. My mom was a farmer. We always lived in really rural areas, even in Florida. So our dinner table conversations were, you know, we've got to make sure we spread the manure tomorrow morning and make sure that, you know, the that the the water buckets are full for the horses. And at the same time, my dad was talking about closing deals and developing pipelines and, and talking about, you know, all the great things that were going on in business at the time. And then when I did not get drafted in baseball, my dad said the best training I could get in life was to learn to sell copiers door to door to businesses. And it would be great for your communication, your confidence and learning how to close and prospect and build a pipeline. And so I did, and, and you know, I did really well and ended up getting promoted to field trainer and then actually running one of his divisions at an early age. So when I became a fighter pilot, I was at Luke Air Force Base. And, you know, when you go to RTU, you're what, about 15, 16 months into your total training. I'm walking out to fly the Eagle for the first time. And as I'm getting ready to pull the GFS handle, the jet fuel starter handle for the first time, I paused for a minute and I just had an epiphany. I said, you know, how does a normal guy like me, you know, Jim Murphy from Shelby County, Kentucky, how does a guy like me get here in this seat? You know, flying at the time, a $30 million plus air to air fighter, arguably the best on earth at the time, uh, depending on your perspective. And but how does a normal guy like me get here? And 16 months ago, I was on a farm and selling copiers to small little companies. And I realized that I had gone through a unique process and one that the Air Force probably couldn't even articulate themselves, but had, you know, codified itself over 40, 50 years into being the most dynamic, dominant air force in the world. And I said, you know, I'm going to study that process because it's very unique. Because if I would have had just one one hundredth of this alignment around mission, uh, you know, the camaraderie and focus and, and the execution rhythm that we're taught as fighter pilots, both individually and as a team and in a larger organization, as a business person, I would have killed it. And as an athlete, I would have benefited from this as well. So I saw, you know, what I thought was a pretty magical process that I thought could be a powerful business or performance process outside of the Air Force, outside of the fighter pilot world. So that day after I soloed the F-15, I remember I'm at the bar and on a bar napkin, I start I start penciling out the tenets of what is now called flawless execution, which is what we teach at Afterburner. And I even, you know, came up with the name Afterburner at the time, seminars, and, you know, what is an Afterburner? It accelerates performance. So I put that in the back of my mind and then 
pursued my dream as, as a fighter pilot, but I kept coming back to the idea. And over the next four or five years as a fighter pilot, because I was full time, I started working on this idea. And different people came into my life at that time, business people, and gave me more and more confidence that, hey, I should start a company or write a book or do something and teach people this process. So over that time frame, I started realizing that it's really a business model and it really could benefit individual contributors, say a salesperson or maybe even a CEO. Because if you think about force multiplication, effects-based operations, plan brief, execute debrief, root cause analysis, all the things that we were taught that was just, they, they were just normal breathing steps for you and I were super cosmic out there in the business world. Nobody was doing any of this stuff. And if they could, it would absolutely create an accelerant that their competitors couldn't copy. So I realized while I was a fighter pilot, I need to get a lot more business knowledge. So I was faced at a point in my career where I had an opportunity to go to weapons school or not. And if I didn't, then go part-time as a guardsman, a traditional guardsman. If I went to weapons school, I'd have to come back for a couple more years of full-time commitment. I was a captain at the time. I felt like I was at the top of my game as a fighter pilot and decided at that point, uh, instead of going to weapons school, I would go ahead and launch my business career. And I took a job with a paint company in Los Angeles to help them stand up a new sales force. And I thought I would pl- apply everything that I was squirreling away as afterburner, as our methodology or heuristic, if you will. And I would try it on this new, this new job opportunity that I got. The company was a small paint company that only had about $5 million in revenue at the time. And it had never grown more than about 3 to 5% year to year. And we got involved in the company. And when I say we, we had a team. I hired about 14 guys, 15 guys. And I was working for another great guy, a guy named Ron Bogdanovich. Together, we took that company from five to 52 million in revenue in two years. And uh, I think a lot of it was due to some of the rigor and the processes that we applied based on the ideas that I had. And that gave me the confidence to finally go on my own and start Afterburner. But a lot of things happened right about that time frame. My unit tragically uh, got the word that they were going to convert from the F-15 to the B-1B and my unit was going to move from Dobbins down to Warner Robins Air Force Base. So I'm a Southern boy flying Eagles in Atlanta. It was just a, you know, a permanent dream. I thought, you know, they'd have to cry me out of the Eagle one day when I'm my age. But, you know, I was still a, a captain at the time and, and the F-15 was going away. Luckily, the Florida Guard was upgrading from their F-16s to the F-15 and then <laughs> IPs. And uh, I was lucky enough to get hired by the Florida Guard as an IP to help them with that conversion. At the same time, I had put in some airline applications years earlier. Uh, and, you know, like a lot of us were pursuing an airline career. United calls and gives me an opportunity to come interview. I interview and lo and behold, they hire me. So I'm having to now help another unit convert the Florida Air National Guard. So it's early cadre there. I was still living in Atlanta and now I have to go to Denver for training at United. And I open up the Wall Street Journal and I read that my local hometown big company, which is Home Depot, had announced they were going to go from 300 stores to 2,000 stores over the next four or five years. And when I read that article, I realized there is the opportunity I was looking for. I knew Home Depot well. 
They're in my hometown. So I decided to drive by the headquarters building and just see who was in charge of management training and hiring because I figured that person had a big problem on their hands because how are we going to go from 300 stores to 2,000 and pull that off? I mean, that would be like standing up a brand new wing or deploying somewhere, you know, all 1,200 personnel somewhere, which we routinely did in the military. So I found out who this person's name was by driving by the building and talked to the receptionist. And she said the guy's name was Dave Bogage and he's up on the 24th floor. And I said, I'd like to come back sometime and, and meet him, get an appointment with him. And I was in my flight suit. I just flying, just got finished flying a mission. And uh, she goes, well, Captain, let me see if he's here now. He might see you now. And I said, no, that's OK. I need to come back. And she goes, no, I insist. And lo and behold, Two minutes later, I'm standing in front of the head guy at Home Depot for basically all of HR. And he said, well, young man, why are you here? How do you think you can help me? And I said, well, sir, I come from an organization that knows how to do exactly what you may not realize you need right now. And he goes, what's that? And I said, scalability, force multiplication. And he goes, well, young man, why do you think we need that? And I go, well, I just saw that Bernie and Arthur, the, you know, the, the head leadership, made an announcement on Wall Street that you're going to have this explosive growth. And I was doing the math. I mean, every Home Depot store has about 200 employees. It has five departments, which means five assistant managers and one store manager. So to go from 300 stores to 2,000 stores, you're going to have to take every assistant manager to stand up a store and you're still going to be woefully short and you'll have zero assistant managers. How are you going to keep this culture intact? How are you going to do that? And I really don't think he had done that math in his head yet. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, well, how can you help me? And I said, well, I come from an organization that routinely knows how to do that. And I can show you how to do that based on my training. I mean, the Air Force invested $6 million in my training. Uh, we have the most inclusive, diverse force on earth. And we know how to rapidly set up and deploy and grow. And he said, you're on. Can you be here in two weeks? <laughs> And uh, so that was the beginning of Afterburger. When he said that, you know, we had basically two weeks to get ready. I ended up talking to three or four of my squadron buddies and asked them to help me out. And, you know, we got to work and literally two, uh, two and a half weeks later, we were doing our first seminar with Home Depot. Ended up getting multiple standing ovations. We came back two weeks later, did another seminar for 90 more managers. And then Mr. Bogage said, we want you to train the entire company from every assistant manager all the way up to the store managers, our merchandisers and our VPs. It's about 2,200 people in the next seven months. So he handed me a giant check that I'd never seen before. And I put that in the bank and we went to work. But unfortunately, at the same time, I was expected to be at United Airlines to learn how to fly an airplane, an airliner, and to help the Florida Guard stand up at the F-15. So that year, that was 1996, was a really busy year. But that's how we got started. And literally, after we finished that training, a couple months later, I was on a deployment. And a lady had called me from the Wall Street Journal to do a quick phone interview. I didn't really think it was going to lead to much. But while I was on that deployment, we ended up being on the cover of the Wall Street Journal marketplace. And the headline said something like, Elite Fighter Pilots Helped Home Depot Become America's Most Admired Retailer. And when that article came out, literally, you know, the phone rang off the hook. A lot of opportunities came our way. And we learned a lot about business and contracts. And, and uh, that was really kind of the catalyst for Afterburner. And since then, we've trained about 2 million people in 26 different countries. Uh, 
you know, written six books on the subject of organizational execution and just had this incredible run with Afterburner, but more importantly, have had an opportunity hazard to have guys just like you guys and girls that former elite military professionals, fighter pilots that well over a hundred now, I think that have come through our doors and contributed to Afterburner. It's been just a real pleasure. That's incredible. That's incredible how how well that worked out, that that bold game plan. I guess that's what they they teach us. If you execute a game plan violently, you're more likely to get lucky. So that's incredible how that worked out. What was your time management like during that year, having to manage all those irons in the fire? It was really about priorities. So I was conflicted. I mean, I was super passionate about flying the F-15 and now I had an extension on life, so to speak. I mean, when the Georgia Guard was going to go away, potentially, you know, you're you're 29 years old, 30 years old, an instructor in the F-15 at the top of your game. And they're going to tell you, go home. You know, you can't be a fighter pilot anymore. So to get hired by the Florida Air National Guard and to extend that career was just, you know, an unbelievable opportunity in, in my mind. Because, you know, you know, Hazard, I'm sure when you look in the mirror right now, you see F-35 fighter pilot. And, you know, when I looked in the mirror, I saw F-15 instructor pilot, fighter pilot. I couldn't even fathom anything else. But at the same time, you've got United Airlines, one of the largest airlines. And everybody tells you when you get hired by the airline, you've got it made, you know, wide body captain one day working 11 days a month. So I thought that was my long term security. And then I had this business passion and I felt like I had this incredible thing locked in me that just was dying to get out. I, I felt like I had to teach people and had to express what I had learned as a fighter pilot because I absolutely knew that if I put it into a formula, which we did, and we applied it to other places, business, maybe even athletics, maybe healthcare, patient safety, I knew that this was you know lightning in a bottle. And it was a hunch at the time, but now it's been proven. It's a proven process. But at the time, it was a hunch, but it was just a burning passion. And I felt really compelled to do that. One, I felt like it was great for you and I as fighter pilots because, you know, it was showing the world that, you know, the training that we went through and, and the folks that we are, you know, there's there's more things to apply than just flying airplanes. But I also saw, you know, the business opportunity as well. And I thought, wow, if I could put together a company uh, and I could get Hazard and folks like Hazard and harness their enthusiasm and their past experiences using this proven methodology that's now applied to business, boy, I really think we have something. So the time management at the time was Afterburner really kind of came first only because the urgency was there. We had 2,200 Home Depot people we had to train. And United, I thought, you know, I could maybe as a fighter pilot, you get you pretty confident that you can almost do anything. I figured, well, I'll, I'll figure out how to fly this airliner. I almost failed out of United school. As a matter of fact, I hooked my first check ride. <laughs> I thought they were going to run me out of there. So I had to, had to refly my check ride and, and passed it. And then I had, you know, promises to my new squadron mates down at the Florida international guard. And, you know, they needed a lot of help and it was tough. I mean, um, you know, I, they started calling me stealth down at the Florida guard because <laughs> I wasn't nearly a, around as much as I had promised to be. So it was a tough, tough year. And then very quickly after that, I had to prioritize my life and finally go, okay, what do I really want to be when I grow up? And I said, I want to grow a company and be a CEO. So I had, so the first thing is, you know, I had to go to the guard and say, look, my commitment in the future now has changed. And then eventually, you know, 
took a leave of absence from United and then eventually resigned my position there and focused full time on being a CEO. Was it smooth sailing early on or were there struggles that you had to overcome? Is there any time that you lost confidence, I guess, in the journey? I don't think I ever lost confidence in the journey, but there were many struggles. I mean, just, you know, we don't have enough time to go into it all, but there were so many high points. I mean, early on, you know, I, I met some great people. Also had some great partners early on, a guy named Anthony Burke, a guy named George Dragish, just phenomenal guys. But really, when you get a group of people like us together, Hazard, in a squadron atmosphere with a unified goal, uh, it's fun. And we had a lot of fun. But also leading a group of high performance individuals was also extremely challenging. So, you know, you can ask any of your squadron commanders or wing commanders that, you know, we're not flying the jet anymore. Now we're commanding and, you know, it's just super challenging and it's, it just requires a different skill set. And probably early on in the year, I, I, years I didn't have that skill set, made some mistakes and have learned many since then. So there have been lots of highs, definitely some lows, but gosh, I, you know, we, we might go into two or three different episodes for me to go through all of them. <laughs> Yeah, it was great. I mean, the beginning years were really good. Economically, you know, there were multiple downturns that we went through and we weathered all of those. So the brand has been intact. It's been really strong. We've currently pivoted the business away from doing a lot of speaking and training to more consulting now and also going in and working side by side with companies on their can't fail initiatives. So the business has certainly morphed and and changed uh, uh, quite a bit over the last 25 years. Was it difficult to keep the culture intact as you scaled? It really was. We had kind of like a guard unit in a way. Most of the guys that worked at Afterburn early years were 1099s. They weren't full-time. So they had airline jobs. They were flying in the reserves as a guard or the naval reserves. So we were just one of the things that they were doing. So we always carried more folks than we really needed to do that we needed to accomplish the mission. But but we had to do that because we had to have always have an available schedule. So that was challenging those earlier years. But later on, we needed a blend of both full time folks and part time folks. And then as the business started maturing, more and more folks that were really serious about business and which was tough because, to be honest with you, most of our squadron mates are looking at airlines or other things, and they are true students of business. And as we started to elevate our game at Afterburner and get invited more and more into the C-suite, the C-level executive suite, our business acumen was truly important. So if you look at us now and the way we recruit and hire folks, you know, we're looking for folks that may not necessarily want to continue their flying career or, or if they're in elite military guys, special ops guys, they don't necessarily want to go into security, but they're really focused on maybe getting an MBA or focusing on business. So as the business started to mature and grow, that so, so did that as well. As you're growing, how do you develop an incentive structure so that it keeps people individually motivated and then, I guess, helping out the team as well? Yeah, so for the 1099 models, early on, we created a lot of incentives to do that, but realized later on that as a 1099, those folks are going to come and go. So it's kind of like a guard unit. 
later on, we realized too, that our W2s though, are potentially folks that may be here for, for the long haul. So, you know, just like any corporation, we had to put in bonus structures and then later on realizing that if we're going to truly grow executives, they need to have skin in the game and have the ability to have equity in the business as well. So if you look at our CEO now, Joel Thornib and other folks on our executive team, they're actually shareholders and partners in the business with common stock, you know, not, uh, not phantom stock or, but, but real stock in the business. So, so they're directly tied to the success of the business. How do you go out and I guess, compete with some of the larger firms like McKinsey, other consulting firms? How, how do you guys pitch Afterburner? So we do that often. We're, we're competing with them. And a lot of it has to do with our methodology. You know, a McKinsey and a Deloitte, I mean, they have deep talent pools too. Uh, and they have specialists in different areas, but they're also generous in a lot of ways. in the fact that they will come in and do a lot of discovery, they'll put together a lot of reports and a lot of the advice that they're giving is based on the data that they mine on site. We're more like, Hey, we're going to come in, we're going to mine that data as well, but we're going to, we're, we're not going to give you a fish. We're going to show you how to fish. So we're going to show you this methodology that works. You're going to have to do some of the work yourself, but we're going to show you the process and then we're going to execute alongside of you with the process. And then once it becomes muscle memory, we're out, which is completely opposed to what an Accenture or Boston consulting group would like to do that. They want to stay there for the long haul. So they, they, they want to, they want to insert people, have people on site and, and, you know, probably best case stay there permanently. And you've worked with a lot of the, the Fortune 500 companies. I also saw you work with the New York Giants for their Super Bowl run. What, what was that like? That yeah, was awesome. And we ended up working with 14 different NFL teams. Uh, it was really fun work for our guys. The Giants story in particular was really cool because it ended in a Cinderella story and a Super Bowl win. But um, we first got called by Coach Coughlin. And we flew up to meet with them. I flew up with uh, two of our other guys, a fighter pilot and a Navy SEAL. And it was interesting when you walked into the performance center at the time, brand new Giants complex and Eagles complex, you walk into Coach Coughlin's office and he's a big student of the military. So, you know, there were challenge coins in there and a lot of military memorabilia. But he had one of my books, Flawless Execution, on his desk. And it was all dog-eared and notes all in it and stickies all in it which uh, was pretty cool, I have to admit. And we sat down and basically what he told us is that, you know, he didn't want some general team building or, or, a, or a talk or a motivational speech. He's got a real problem. And he's got a problem with his gap defense. And more importantly, he's got a problem with veterans and, and his younger rookies. And they weren't communicating very well. And we started talking to them about debriefs in a nameless, rankless environment and the importance of debriefing, making pivots, uh, not only after the game is over, but even during the game. And we talked to him about a methodology on how to do that. And he said, well, I want you to come in and dress the team next week. So I'm going to, right before we practice, I want you to come in with your guys, give us a one-hour keynote, really focus on what we talked about, because I think our guys need to hear it from you. So we came in, did our normal high-energy afterburner thing, and we're in the New York Giants auditorium, and there's all, all the guys, you know. I mean, Eli Manning's on the front row, Justin Tuck's on the second row behind him, captain of the defense. And there's Coach Coughlin and the entire coaching staff in one room. And we do a keynote, and at the end, Coach Coughlin came up to us and said, 
you know, Murph, that was outstanding. That's exactly what we need. As a matter of fact, this is the first time I've done this in my coaching career. We're going to take the rest of the day off. And I'd like for you, Murph, to stay in this room with Eli and the offense. I'd like Justin Tuck and the defense to go next door with one of your other guys. And I want special teams and coaches to go in another room with your other guy. And I want you to teach us how to do this. And of course, we weren't set up or ready to do that, but you're not going to say no at that type of opportunity. And we go, yes, sir, we can do that. So we split up and we start teaching these guys how to debrief the way we would teach businesses how to debrief. And we've got a methodology and a model to do that. And it was really, really interesting work. So we left on a high note and the next week they lost and they're doing their film on Tuesday. And a guy named Perry Fuel is the, one of the coaches, the defense coach. And he calls me at like 7.30, 8 o'clock at night and tells me that the defense just did their first afterburner, nameless, rankless debrief and uh, and ended up in a fistfight. And I just remember my heart stopped beating and I'm thinking, oh boy, this is not good. We're going to end up on the cover of Sports Illustrated and it's not going to be a good article. (laughs) And I go, I'm so sorry, coach. And he goes, no, 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 it was great. It's going to be the turning point of our season, I'm sure. And he goes, that's just the way we roll in the defense. And I go, well, that's really not the intent of a nameless, rankless debrief. And he laughs and he goes, yeah, I know. And he goes, as a matter of fact, I think we need you guys here to facilitate these debriefs. And I go, I think that would be great. So we had a guy on our team that was from New York. He was just a tried and true Giants fan. So we gave him the assignment. He was an ex-F-15 guy. And he embedded himself with the team for the rest of the season. And if you remember that year, they turned a losing season around to a winning season. Ended up playing uh, for the NFC Champions uh, Championship. They were playing the 49ers. And when they won that game, our guys in the locker room with the coaches, and they call us and celebrate. And Coach Coughlin says, hey, if it wasn't for Afterburner, we wouldn't be here. We want to invite you, Murph, and your, your spouse and your guys and their spouses to Indianapolis and to sit with the family section. And if we win the Lombardi trophy, we want you to be on the field to accept the trophy with us. So it was really cool. We go to Indianapolis and I don't know if you remember that game, they're playing against Tom Brady. He's marching down Mm -hmm. the field with 35 seconds to go. They're going to score to win. And the giants end up winning and we run out onto the field and literally, you know, I was there for that, for the, ceremony. I got to touch the Lombardi trophy before Coach Coughlin did. And it was just an incredible experience. Right after that, Sports Illustrated wrote about that. And we were mentioned in the Sports Illustrated article. And about six to eight weeks after that, we were invited back up to New York to Tiffany's for the ring ceremony when the team received their Super Bowl rings. And then uh, we had a squadron type poster with all of our guys and the units they flew with and their call signs and a picture of, you know, an Eagle and an F-22 and F-18 Hornet and different airplanes. And then we exchanged that picture for a New York Giants poster or the picture of the trophy and all the teams signed it. And it was a really big deal. So it was cool. Yeah, that's, that sounds awesome. So throughout all these NFL teams, what are some trends that they had issues with that you guys were able to help out with? You know, I, I think the Giants were the only organization that truly took the process to heart and used it. I worked with Peyton Manning the very next year at Denver when he was there for the first year. So Coach Fox was there and I worked with the team and, and, you know, Peyton took on, took it on himself to, 
to do it. As a matter of fact, another highlight for Afterburners, I'm watching uh, the Broncos play one Sunday and the Fox Sports announcer said, hey, Peyton's doing a nameless, rankless debrief that he learned from a group of fighter pilots. Now, they didn't mention Afterburner, unfortunately, but you know, I felt like that was a huge win when everybody got that word. But the rest of the teams, we did, you know, probably 12 or 13 more teams and seminars, and they used us more of motivation. They really didn't grab the process. But one of the things that we learned, and I only did the first two, and then I let our guys do the rest of them. But I think universally, when we debriefed the NFL work that we did, what we found out was every team was just so different from the culture. So the culture really emanates from the GM and the owners. And every team was just so different than the other. It was, it was pretty, uh, it was hard to really get a trend, but the trends are just like we found in business and hazard. You'd find this interesting is that most companies, most NFL teams, most organizations and teams really don't prepare very well. They don't plan like you and I would before a sortie. They certainly don't do that time where innovation, open thinking and planning closes and they have a brief where they say, okay, this is the preparatory command execution. We're going to brief. Now, we've already decided what we're going to do, but now the leader's going to stand and brief on what we agreed to do in the plan, and we're all going to sign off on it, and we're actually going to go out and execute it. So plan, brief, execute. And the execution phase is what we do what? We execute the pre-planned brief, what we plan. And if we deviate from what we said we were going to do, then what do we do? When we land, we debrief and we look at those deviations. We look at those execution gaps because we know, you and I know, that if we close those execution gaps faster than our threat does, we win. In business, if we close our execution gaps, we innovate, we stay at the same rate of change or even slightly ahead of the rate of change in our environment and we sell and we win more as well. So what I learned in the NFL and what I learned in business is most companies just don't have that disciplined rigor, that very simple process of prepare, plan, brief, preparatory step before execute, go out and execute what? The pre-brief plan, not just go out and free for all like most companies do, but execute something very specific. And oh, by the way, if the plan was based on bogus inputs and the brief didn't go that well, that means our execution didn't go that well. Well, let's debrief it and tighten it all up. And let's do it over again. Plan, brief, execute, debrief. Plan, brief, execute, debrief. You keep doing that over and over and over again. Your execution levels get tighter and tighter and tighter. It is truly the most powerful, agile framework in the world. And nobody talks about it except Mm -hmm. for us. Yeah, it sounds simple. But I think back to some of my early flight lead briefs and execution. And uh, it's definitely much, much tougher in practice to actually do. Absolutely. And the things that we learned were, hey, if the briefing doesn't start on time and we don't step on time, i.e. if the briefing was late or sloppy, what happens in the jet every mm-hmm. single time? Same thing. You and I are the same. The weapons are the same. The technology is the same. But if our briefing was late or sloppy, it translates to the jet. I mean, execution yeah. every single time. And oh, by the way, if you and I didn't take that painful time to debrief and our debriefs were tough in the fighter pilot world and really long, we wouldn't accelerate our experience as quickly as we do and be so dominant. I mean, you think about what we do in the Air Force, Navy, and the Marines. We take 20-year-olds, 20-year-old kids, men and women, if you will, and have them execute some of the most dynamic things on earth. And they do it every single day. And they do it in an unbelievably safe manner, but more importantly, a lethal manner. And 
I believe it's because of this simple process. That's that's why we started Afterburn, or I started Afterburn. Plan, brief, execute, debrief is a win. It's a framework. It's a heuristic. And if you live your life by it or run your company by it, you're going to beat everybody else. How are companies doing right now with COVID-19? I imagine a lot of them did not have a contingency plan for a pandemic. So how can they kind of adapt to this model? Well, again, that's a whole nother episode. And, you know, if, if any of your viewers want to go to our website, afterburner.com, we put out a lot of information and trends about what's going on in COVID-19 in both the small and medium SMB, uh, mid-sized market, and also the large publicly traded enterprises, global enterprises. But, you know, of course, we didn't have a contingency for this. And how are people dealing with this? Well, it is an absolute game changer in the fact that we're having to learn to execute in a new way with a new medium just like you and I are right now. So if you think about, yeah, I just saw that Zoom now is more valuable than all seven airlines. Wow. Come on, they're valuable. I think I just read that this morning. So that was a really short period of time, right? Zoom's not very old. But you and I, if you are, you and I are in the business world, you're not, you know, and I am, but I see what's happening in the business world. It's kind of like the squadron, how quickly people are getting up to speed with this new execution rhythm, how to create good, communication protocols using Zoom or other online protocols? How do we meet and still understand what the customer wants virtually in this COVID-19 world? So, you know, what we're seeing is how quickly the world is adopting to the new execution rhythm of being virtual. Have you found at Afterburner that you can do everything that you did before from a virtual environment? Are you asking me that from an afterburner perspective or our client's perspective? From an afterburner perspective, can you guys go in and work with companies virtually? Yeah, we're doing it uh, every single day and it's been great, actually. Uh, We're doing a lot of consulting work and we're even doing some of our training as well virtually. But absolutely, we are using the same protocols we use live in a virtual environment. It's going really well. Our clients are doing a pretty decent job as well. You know, the, the ramp up's been really fast. Some of our clients are doing a better job than others, but, you know, there's idiosyncrasies like I'm getting ready to do a little piece uh, on LinkedIn tomorrow about subcultures. And if you really think about what's kind of happening right now as a leader, you still need to make sure in this Zoom world that you get out and meet all of the different units or divisions in the business and not just the leader. So what we see right now is a lot of commanders having their commanders meeting on Zoom, but now the commanders aren't getting out in the field and seeing the rest of the troops, if you will. So it's really important from a cultural standpoint that you still get in front of the troops. So subcultures don't begin to form because, you know, you might have a strong leader over here that might start shifting the culture and get it disaligned with the organizational culture a little bit, unless you're still able to get in front of those folks. So those types of challenges are starting to crop up. And in a really short amount of time, it's only been, what, four to six weeks. Mm -hmm. And we're already starting to see some trends about uh, how folks are executing from a virtual standpoint and what it means for, from a commander's and a leader's intent. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. It's kind of like the board just got shooken up and some people like Zoom, it, it was good for. And for a lot of people, it's been terrible for us. So it'll be interesting to see how people adapt to the new landscape. That's right. Everything's a startup right now. I mean, that's the other trend that we're seeing. And that is it really doesn't matter who you are. We're starting over. 
And everybody needs to have that startup mentality, which means you have to be urgent. I mean, like really urgent. And, you know, the gas pedal should be all the way to the floor right now. And if it's not, then, you know, you're probably behind. And we know one thing, too, the folks that are executing urgently right now, uh, you know, their uh, market share capture is is really increasing rapidly, especially if they're using the virtual world to do it, because there's a lot of eyeballs on those folks. So we're seeing that, you know, the old age adage that, you know, in a startup world, you know, one hard day's work is equivalent to about two weeks work in the normal world or a company that's up and running. So everybody's kind of in that startup mentality. And if you're not, you're way behind. And so what projects are you working on right now? I saw in 2019, you, you passed off the CEO role to another member and afterburner. I guess can you talk about that experience and what you're working on now? Yeah, it was a that was a big big move for for me personally, but uh, you know Thor Joel Neve, our CEO, has just been doing a phenomenal job. And from day one, that's what he said he wanted to do when he came to Afterburner. When he got his MBA at Texas and focused really hard on you know becoming a true business student and and then a great consultant. And you know now he's just been a great CEO for us. But for me personally, I've got two young boys. So I'm coaching baseball, which is something I always wanted to do and I haven't had time to do in the past. Pursuing a lot of my interests that I have, I'm a big outdoorsman. So I've got a farm up in Kentucky and doing some fishing down in Florida as well. And my wife is the CEO of our other company that we started 10 years ago, Advanced Care Partners and Pediatrics. So supporting her as well uh, on those endeavors. We just uh, sold part of the business to a private equity firm up in Nashville last fall. So that's uh, been a big move for us and our family. And as well, that company is now on a, you know, they're acquiring other businesses right now. So that keeps us really busy as well. And, you know, I'm actively starting to invest in other companies and become board members of these companies and uh, even invested in a few startups right now and, and helping these startups navigate COVID-19 and figure out, you know, how to really find their way. So um, I'm very much involved in business and busy doing a lot of things I was doing at Afterburner, but with some companies that we've invested in and we've gotten really close to. Was it difficult to make Afterburner self-sufficient? I just got done reading a book, Principles by Ray Dalio, and oh, yeah. it was difficult for him. He initially handed it off and then had to come back and help out the company. So what do you do to train your replacement and make sure that it becomes a self-sufficient company? Yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. I I, I had uh, attempted to do it once before unsuccessfully. And a lot of it has to do with your own mentality and your own approach, and then also finding the right team. But the key is the same thing we share with most companies out there, and that is making sure that you have a passionate vision or what we call it afterward, HDD, a high definition destination. So the company all you know, is bought in, has taken part, and has helped design the future that we want. So that's critical. And then having the management in place to then perpetuate the motion in that direction. And then those principles, the guiding precepts, whatever you want to call that, the things that we'll always do and never do and be willing to hire and fire based on those principles are really key. And it's not always an easy thing to do. It's a tough call sometimes, but when you make those calls and the organization sees that you're, you're living true to those principles and that HDD, and then you really start weeding out the folks that really probably shouldn't be 
part of the team and you really start to attract the people that should be part of the team. And I think that's where we are right now. And I think that uh, Thor's doing a wonderful job harnessing that. And where can people keep up and follow along with what you're doing? They can look under Flawless Execution on LinkedIn or James D. Murphy on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. And then, of course, if they want information about Afterburner, uh, afterburner.com. Anything you'd like to leave the audience with? You know, I just think, Justin, I look at what you're doing. I'm so excited about where you are in life. I mean, uh, you know, you're flying one of the best jets in the world. I'd love to hear more about the F-35. I'm glad the guy got out last night, by the way. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's an exciting time. Uh, I, I just, all the folks that have come through the door at Afterburner and all the folks that will in the future, I just love the opportunity to tell our stories and how we're changing the business landscape out there because we certainly are. And, and I think we've kind of, been one of the main reasons I think we've created our own little industry, if you really think about it. I mean, when Afterburner first started, nobody really heard of applying military or fighter pod or elite military principles or processes to business. And if you look out there now, we've got an entire industry around that. And I'm extremely proud of that. I think there were tons of people that have checked out our website and looked at what we're done, what we've done. And it's inspired them to go out and hang up their own shingle. And, and uh, I think the world's getting some great leadership advice and heuristic and process advice. And, you know, I think we're making our mark out there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. About probably about a third of these books back here are following in your footsteps. So I really appreciate what you guys have done and I appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, Hazard, good luck. Thank you for having us. All the best. All right. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like a Professionals Playbook t-shirt, you can go to professionalsplaybook.com to see a few that I designed. Today's episode is brought to you by sandboxnews.com, a media company whose mission and purpose is connecting the military community. They have in-depth articles related to different facets of the military, everything from how to become an Army Ranger to an article I wrote on self-discipline. You can learn more at sandboxnews.com. That's S-A-N-D-B-O-X-X news.com. Today's episode was edited by Trevor Cabler. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you in two weeks.